Well, for those of you that are visiting this morning, you're not normally here, I am not the regular preacher. Uh, My name's Ken Smith, and uh, you're getting the JV team today. But I'm grateful for the opportunity that I have to preach and uh, pray that the Lord blesses his word. Um, Because I am not the regular preacher, I feel like I can take some liberties, and so I'm going to ask if you would to indulge me for a few moments um, at the start of the sermon as I share a couple of stories about two of my grandchildren. Uh, The first concerns our granddaughter, Afton, uh, who will be two in April. And the second one is about uh, her brother, Lincoln, uh, who is five. About two weeks ago or so, uh, our daughter-in-law, Holly, um, had the uh, sad experience of having her uh, grandmother pass away. Her grandmother was 86 years old and had had a number of health concerns. And uh, though her name was Nona, uh, she was known as Mimi by her grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And uh, Mimi was a wonderful Christian woman uh, whose death was bittersweet uh, for those who knew her and uh, loved her. At the visitation... At the funeral home uh, the night before the funeral, Holly had Afton in her arms as uh, she took her up to see Mimi. And as they were standing there in front of the casket, uh, Afton looked at her great-grandmother and said, Mimi, night-night. And then she started snoring in a very ladylike way. That's the first story. And hopefully you'll see how this is relevant in a moment. Uh, The second story is about her brother Lincoln, uh, who is five. And uh, just a couple days ago on Friday, uh, Cheryl's phone rang in the middle of the afternoon. It was about 2.15. Her phone rang, and uh, she answered it, and it was Lincoln on the other end of the line. And uh, I hadn't yet left for work at the school. And uh, so I got to share in the conversation. Cheryl put it on speakerphone. And uh, Lincoln said that he had a story he wanted to tell us about something that had happened to him that day. And uh, he said, and if you want to sit on the couch while I tell you the story, that's okay. If you you knew Lincoln, you would know there are no short stories with Lincoln. Well, we didn't sit on the couch, but we did uh, tell him to go ahead with the story. And I'm not going to tell you the whole thing, but to make a long story short, uh, while they were at the Children's Science Museum in Oklahoma City, Uh, Lincoln had jumped uh, from a landing that was part of the treehouse area and had sprained his leg. And so we asked him, you know, are you okay? And he assured us that this was nothing serious, that he would not have to go to the doctor or the hospital or anything like that for his sprained leg. Um, But then he said, Grandma, would you pray for me? And she said, oh, Link, Papa and I would love to pray for you. Do you, want, do you want to pray right now? To which Lincoln responded, No, you don't need to pray for me right now. Just pray for me night and day. <laughs> well, I tell you those stories uh, because the, the topic of my sermon this morning is fasting. And uh, fasting is often linked with prayer in Scripture. In fact, uh, it was said of 
Anna, the prophetess, in Luke chapter 2, verse 37, that she did not depart from the temple worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. I read that and I thought Lincoln would have liked her. However, now that you know that the topic this morning is fasting, I'm afraid your response is going to be like that of Afton. Fasting. Night, night. (laughs) The truth of the matter is the Bible teaches us much about fasting. The Lord Jesus Christ himself fasted. And he directly addressed the practice of fasting on several occasions. So this morning, as we look at following Christ in fasting, here is the main point. Fasting that honors God serves to feed the heart that is hungry for God. Fasting that honors God serves to feed the heart that is hungry for God. Now, I have to be honest. Um, I feel like I'm kind of, with this topic, walking a bit of a tightrope here because fasting is one of those things that we can easily press out of shape and we can make it into something that it is not supposed to be. And I don't want that to happen as a consequence of this message this morning. Like I said, fasting in Scripture is often coupled with prayer. And so the sermon that Caleb preached a few weeks ago about following Christ in prayer, uh, lay that over the top of this sermon, okay? And uh, view it through that lens. Um, Fasting alone uh, easily becomes a uh, kind of like a, a magic wand for us, uh, some sort of talisman that we pull out as a means of getting what we want from God. And that's certainly not at all what fasting is intended to be. Because fasting is so easily uh, pressed out of shape and distorted, maybe that's one of the reasons why we don't practice it very much. And yet the the dangers associated with fasting ought not to cause us to never do it. I mean, Bible reading can easily become the same sort of thing, can it not? Prayer can be just a ritual. Uh, Giving of our offerings can become uh, something that we do mindlessly and not in a worshipful way. And we would never tell someone, we would never think to say, well, because Bible reading can be done wrongly, you should not read your Bible. Neither would we say, because it's easy to give mindlessly, well, then you should never give. But sometimes we slip into that mindset regarding fasting. And so the the key for us, the challenge for us, is to view fasting rightly and to do it in a way that honors God. And to understand that fasting is not an end in itself. It serves a purpose. It is a servant to help, help lead us with hungry hearts to feed upon God. And so that's, that's the challenge this morning is to uh, help us all to see fasting in the right way. And therefore to strive to 
practice it in a way that honors and glorifies God. Now, I have to be honest here. As I talk to you about fasting, it's not that I am a, a skilled practitioner myself. There have been probably less than a handful of times in my life where I have uh, purposely sought to uh, seek the Lord in fasting. Truth be told, I probably should have done it more and need to practice it more, and hopefully that will come out in the course of this sermon as to why. But just for the sake of uh, full disclosure, uh, there have not been that many seasons in my life where I have myself practiced fasting. But in those times, I know that uh, God has um, been pleased to draw near and to help bring me through what may have started out with a, a wrong intent. He has helped to shape my heart to conform to a proper approach to fasting and to seek his face and his face alone. So, all that being said, um, it would probably be good for us to begin by taking it a bit of an overview of fasting. Most of us are more acquainted with fasting for medical reasons. You know, you have to go in and have a series of blood tests done, so you have to be fasting before they draw the blood, and then they can tell, you know, what is going on with your blood sugars and cholesterol and all that stuff. A lot of us have had that experience. We understand fasting for medical reasons or not eating before you have to have surgery. So we understand fasting for medical reasons. But we're not so acquainted with fasting for spiritual purposes. So I think it's good for us to take a minute here to, uh, to get a broad view of what the Bible says about fasting. What is fasting? Well, the word used for fasting in the New Testament literally means uh, to cover one's mouth. And so if your mouth is covered, what does that prevent you from doing? You can't eat. And so uh, most often in Scripture when fasting is mentioned, in fact, I cannot really think of an exception, fasting always relates to abstaining from food. In fact, Donald Whitney in his book, which is a very good book on Christian disciplines, spiritual disciplines for the Christian life, Whitney says this, Uh, He defines fasting as a Christian's voluntary abstinence of food for spiritual purposes. A Christian's voluntary abstinence from food for spiritual purposes. And he goes through and highlights the notion that it is a specifically Christian approach to fasting. A lot of religions use fasting But the emphasis here is that we approach it in a Christian way, biblical way. It is voluntary. There is no direct command in the New Testament regarding you must fast. It seems to be understood that probably the followers of Christ would fast. But there is no direct command that says you have to. So it is voluntary. And it is done for spiritual purposes, not for health reasons uh, or anything else, but for spiritual purposes. Richard Foster, 
who has also written much about spiritual disciplines, broadens the definition of fasting somewhat when he says that it can be the voluntary denial of a normal function for the sake of intense spiritual activity. In other words, it can be the setting aside of food, certainly, but it can also be the setting aside of other things like media, like not playing your video games, like refraining from texting, like shutting off Netflix for a while, like denying yourself some sleep. Or as Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 for husbands and wives, uh, refraining from sexual relations for the purpose of giving yourself to prayer. And there are all kinds of other good things that we might fast from or give up for the purpose of seeking God. John Piper, in a book that Chet recommended to me, and I wholeheartedly recommend it to you. In fact, you can get it for free in PDF form from the Desiring God website, which is what I did. Um, A book by John Piper called A A Hunger for God. And Piper gets at the heart of fasting when he says it is the fasting of faith that rests on the finished work of Christ. Thus, fasting becomes a spiritual feasting on Christ with a view to being so satisfied in him that the power of all other allurements is broken. Okay, now there's a a lot in that. So let me read it for you again, particularly the last part. Fasting becomes, quote, a spiritual feasting on Christ with a view to being so satisfied in him that the power of all other allurements is broken. So hopefully that helps set the stage here, give you a picture of what fasting that honors God is to be. Fasting is not a hunger strike whereby we seek to twist God's arm to get what we want. Nor is it merely an act of our will and our willpower whereby we prove our spirituality through an act of asceticism. That's the thing that Paul addresses in Colossians chapter 2, verses 20 through 23, where people tried to, uh, by denying themselves things for the body, to show just how spiritually strong they are. We are called, as the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, we're called to discipline our bodies, literally to beat our bodies, to pummel our bodies, and keep it under control or make it our slaves. But fasting is about more than just the flesh. It is about feeding a heart that is hungry for God. And perhaps that's the reason why we don't fast so much, is that our hearts aren't really all that hungry for God.
Fasting reflects the cry and longing of a heart like David's. When he said this in Psalm 63, verse 1, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. That's a heart that is hungry for God. In Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26, David there says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my what? My portion forever. That's a heart that's hungry for God. And that's the kind of heart that is fed as we give ourselves earnestly, wholeheartedly, as we focus on drawing near to God. And fasting can become a means to doing so. There are a lot of different types of fasting that are described in Scripture. There is uh, what most people call a normal fast, where you didn't eat food, but you could drink water. That seems to be the kind of fasting that is most often portrayed throughout the pages of Scripture. Daniel practiced what could be called a partial fast in Daniel chapter 10, verses 2 and 3. He uh, refused to eat any delicacies, no meat, uh, nor would he drink wine for three weeks as uh, he was in a period of mourning and seeking God. There is also at least uh, a couple examples of an absolute fast uh, where there was no food or water kind of fast that uh, Esther did and uh, Ezra also. In Ezra chapter 10 verse 6 says, Then Ezra spent the night neither eating bread nor drinking water, for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. And then we have some examples, very rare though, of supernatural fasting, in particular that of Moses, when he was on top of Mount Sinai for 40 days and nights. And Moses writes of his experience there that he said, for those 40 days and 40 nights, he had no food, nor did he drink water. God sustained him supernaturally through that. So, those are some types of fasting that we find in Scripture. What would cause a person to fast? Why would someone go to such lengths as to deny themselves food or other things? Sometimes people fasted out of sorrow and with repentance in view. Perhaps one of the more dramatic examples of that comes from the Old Testament book of Jonah. Remember, God sent Jonah to preach to the city of Nineveh, and Jonah ran away, went the other way. God lassoed him and brought him back. And uh, despite his desire to not want to do so, he goes through the city of Nineveh and 
preaches and he says, 40 more days and God's going to overthrow this place. And as he went through the city and proclaimed that message, it says in Jonah chapter 3, verse 4, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They believed God, that he was on the verge of overthrowing that city. And they called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And a few verses later, the king issued a proclamation and he declared to the people, let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and the violence that is in his hands. Fasting often accompanies a sorrow over sin and a desire to turn to God in repentance and to cry out to him for forgiveness and mercy. We also see fasting in the Bible in connection with seeking God's help and his intervention. I mentioned Esther in the Old Testament book of Esther, chapter 3, uh, verses 13 through 17. Mordecai had come to uh, Esther after hearing of the plot by Haman to want to exterminate the Jews. And uh, Haman says, Esther, you need, to, you need to go to the king on behalf of your people. And Esther is uh, reluctant to do so. And she says, look, if I go, uh, there's no guarantee that the king's going to receive me. It may be my death if I go. And Mordecai says, I was chapter 4, not chapter 3. Mordecai says in verse 13 to tell Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come into the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Prayer in connection with seeking God's help and intervention. And not only do we see that with Esther, it happened in other places in Scripture. It's been a part of our own national history and the history of other countries where people have been called to fast and to pray and to seek God's face and to ask for his help and intervention. So there is much precedent for that. Fasting also is seen in connection with worship and prayer within the life of the church and was setting apart people for God's service. In Acts chapter 13, I love the picture that is given us of the church at Antioch. In, uh, in Acts 13, it tells us what was happening within the normal course of life within the church, apparently. Acts 13, verses 2 and 3, says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting... 
the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And having uh, had that happen, Paul and Barnabas followed that same pattern. In Acts 14, verse 23, returning to some of the cities where they had been, it says, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So we see fasting here in connection with worship and prayer and with the setting apart of people for God's service. More often than not, when Scripture speaks of fasting, it speaks of private, individual fasting. But there are also congregational fasts where God called upon the the congregation of people to uh, humble themselves before the Lord and to seek his face. There were national fasts. But there was only one in the Old Testament, only one regular annual fast that was commanded of the people. And that was on the Day of Atonement where everyone was supposed to refrain from food and drink for the purpose of seeking the Lord on that great high day of worship. So, and I've just kind of scratched the surface on all that the Bible has to say about fasting, but you can see that sprinkled throughout Scripture, fasting is present. But we are unfamiliar with fasting. Though the scripture speaks much about it, we are experientially at least not very familiar with fasting. Why is that? Well, I think for a couple of reasons, and there are probably many more, but at least two that I want to mention. One is that we lack the desire for godly discipline. We lack the desire for godly discipline. Paul exhorted Timothy with these words. He said, rather train or discipline yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. I don't know about you. I know for me. I resist doing hard things. Whether it is getting up to exercise or setting aside time to pray, or denying myself something, whether it be food, sleep, whatever for the sake of seeking God. We resist doing hard things. And going without a meal for the sake of seeking God, that's not something that often comes to mind for us. Which leads into the second reason why I think we are not very familiar with fasting. And that is that we have a stronger desire for the good things God provides 
then we desire God himself. About a century ago or so, Oswald Chambers said this. He said, the great enemy of the life of faith in God is not sin, but the good which is not good enough. The good is always the enemy of the best. That's a thought that John Piper picks up in his book, A Hunger for God. When he says this, he says, The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. They are your basic meat and potatoes and coffee and investing and TV watching and internet surfing and shopping and exercising and collecting and talking. And all of them can become deadly substitutes for God. He goes on to say, Therefore, when I say that the root of Christian fasting is the hunger of homesickness for God, I mean that we will do anything and go without anything if, by any means, we might protect ourselves from the deadening effects of innocent delights and preserve the sweet longings of our homesickness for God. Do you get that? It's not that food is bad. We need food. It's not that sleep is bad. We need sleep. It's not that watching TV is bad or surfing the internet is bad or drinking coffee or any of those other things. It's not that those things are bad in and of themselves. But what happens to us over time is those things are what we give ourselves to. And in the process of giving ourselves to those things, we find our hunger for God becoming more and more stunted, more and more calloused. And you might say, well, why does God give us those good things then? Well, it's not wrong of God to give us good things. What is the problem is when we delight in and desire those good things more than and to the neglect of God himself. The question becomes, what controls us? The desire for God's gifts or do we hunger for God? Now, again, I feel like I have to step back a minute and uh, try to bring some balance here because it's going to be very easy for you to jump to the conclusion, oh, man, then I've got to do this. Well, perhaps. But remember, this is a voluntary thing. It is a means to an end, not an end in itself. And the goal of fasting, like our Bible reading, like praying, like any of the other Christian disciplines, the goal is to draw near to the Lord. Not to check off something that says, I have done this. So, 
let's uh, take a minute to look at what Jesus says about fasting, what Jesus teaches us about fasting. If you have your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 4. In fact, we're going to uh, spend most of our remaining time in the gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 4, and uh, let's read verses 1 through 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. To set this in a broader context, if you look at the end of chapter 3, what has just happened? Jesus has come to John the Baptist. There he has given himself to baptism. And in the response to that, there's a voice from heaven. God the Father speaks and says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. God the Father puts his approval upon the Son and uh, the ministry upon which the Son is about to embark. And then it says that the Spirit then led Jesus into the wilderness where he underwent this period of fasting for 40 days and nights. And in that, then, at the end of it, the devil comes to, uh, to tempt him. And Jesus answers by quoting scripture, and not just a random verse, but a purposely chosen passage of scripture. Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8. And if you have your Bible, I want you to turn there as well. Keep your finger in Matthew 4, but turn to uh, the book of Deuteronomy chapter 8. And it's no accident then that Jesus quotes this passage of Scripture because it comes from this context in the history of the people of Israel as they themselves are preparing to enter the promised land. Moses, delivering the word of the Lord, says this, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Forty years, forty days. In the wilderness, 
in the wilderness. God let you go hungry. Jesus fasted. John Piper makes a good point about this passage and the relationship between Matthew 4 and Deuteronomy 8. And he says, as you look back at what happened in Deuteronomy, as Moses reminds the people of what has happened to them over the past 40 years, reminds them of how they had gone hungry and how in their hunger they cried out to God and God then provided the manna from which he fed them for those 40 years. And Piper says, the point here is not that they had hunger, but the point is that God fed them. God gave them manna. God sustained them with this food. But in the sustaining them with food, God's point was to say, it's not about the food here that I give you to fill your stomachs with. The point is that I want you to know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Satan wanted Jesus to focus on feeding his stomach, feeding the flesh. Jesus says, I have a greater food, a more needful food, a food that will sustain my soul. Though my flesh perishes, I am fed by the word of God. Jesus' point here to us is this, that God gives us food, which we need. But our greater need and our deeper hunger is fed by seeking God in his word. Fasting is a means to that end of setting aside the time in which we spend on preparing and eating and cleaning up after meals and giving that time to seeking God in his word. Again, I'm not talking about some legalistic practice, but I am saying we would do well from time to time to set aside what is good for the sake of what is best. Because far too often, our appetite for food overshadows our hunger for God. And when we set aside that food for a while, we are reminded by the grumblings of our stomach that we need God more than anything. We need his word. I appreciate the words of Job. Job chapter 23, verse 12, where he says, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. Would that that would be so for us. See, fasting feeds the heart that is hungry for God as we feast on the word of God. That's one thing that Jesus teaches us about fasting. 
Another thing that Jesus teaches us about fasting is found in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. There Jesus says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast... Anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus tells us here that fasting helps to feed the heart that is hungry for God by seeking the reward of God. Jesus tells us here what the wrong reward is that was commonplace in his day and probably still is even today when people fast. That it was done so that people would notice. He said the hypocrites make themselves look awful so that people will say, are you okay? Oh, I'm just fasting, just seeking God. Jesus reveals the kind of heart mindset, the heart attitude that comes out of that approach to fasting when in a parable that he tells in Luke chapter 18, the parable of of the Pharisee and the tax collector, he talks about how the Pharisee prayed. He said, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people. I give a tithe of all I have and I fast twice a week. Fasting had become mere ritual, a seeking after self-righteousness, praise from men, attention from them. And Jesus says, when you do that, the only reward you're going to get is that. And that's the wrong reward because it reveals a heart that is hungry for the wrong thing. Jesus says when you fast with a heart that is hungry for God, that heart will seek the reward of God and God alone. The right reward, Jesus implies, is God himself. In Genesis chapter 15, verse 1, God comes to Abraham and says to him, Abraham, I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. God gives himself as the reward for which we should seek. And so that's why Jesus says, don't put on a show for other people. Don't blow the trumpet about your fasting. But go about your normal day, dress like you normally would. But leave all this in God's hands. Seek him. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. How will he reward you? By drawing near. By giving you of himself. The third place where Jesus teaches us about fasting is found in Matthew chapter 9. 
This passage of scripture, John Piper says, is the most significant teaching that Jesus gives on fasting. Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 through 17. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. What does Jesus tell us here? One is that while fasting is not commanded, Jesus expects to a certain degree that his followers will fast from time to time. Why? Because the bridegroom is gone. And so Jesus says, right now, when I'm here, it's, it's odd. It would be odd for the, the guests to mourn while the bridegroom is with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom is not here. Then, then they will mourn. They will long for his appearing. Jesus expects that we would mourn his absence and that we would have a longing for his presence. And so Jesus puts the practice of fasting into a new perspective. It's not a ritual, but it comes out of a heart that longs for the fulfilling of God's kingdom and the return of Christ. Jesus acknowledges that the kingdom is both a now and not yet kind of thing. Right now, Christ reigns at the right hand of God the Father, but there is going to come that day when Jesus returns in power and glory and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Believers and unbelievers both will say that. And we as the followers of Christ should long for that day, long for his appearing, desire his coming and return. That we find ourselves so content with life here. We're happy with the way things are right now. Jesus said the day will come when the followers will mourn for his return. Right now we see a shadow of the kingdom. What we should long for is the substance of the kingdom that is to come. Fasting should not be a ritual but a reflection of longing for the real reality that awaits us, and that is to be at home with the Lord.
fasting. I commend you that I haven't seen anyone go completely comatose through this and fall completely asleep. And I understand that this is a a concept that is probably foreign to many of us. I was talking with uh, a guy last Sunday and let him know that I was going to be preaching. He asked what I was going to be preaching about, and uh, and I said fasting, and he said, I have never heard a sermon on that. I dare say if you've not heard a sermon on it, it's probably likely that you've never really done it either. And most of us have, like I said, we have a head knowledge of this topic. Our experience of it probably is pretty small, if any. And the point of talking about this to say is, what are you hungry for? It's not that we don't get hungry for food. In fact, my stomach is empty right now, and so I am ready for lunch. But that hunger also serves to remind me, what am I really hungry for? Am I hungry to know God, to know Christ? My hope in this message is to prompt you to deeper love for God and not a legalism. I hope to encourage you towards seeking God with humility, not to practice some sort of mechanism or a magic mantra that will somehow gain God's attention and thus he will be obligated to do what you ask, to give you what you want. Uh, That's not what this is about. My great desire out of this message is to cause each one of us to look into our hearts and say, what do I really want? Do I want God? Or am I just hoping to get his good gifts? You see, in the end, even the good gifts that God gives, we will find them empty and wanting if that's all that we're focused on. It is Christ and Christ alone that satisfies the hungry heart. Listen to these words of Jesus. In John chapter 6, the great miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000, of giving them food for their stomachs, caused the crowds to come back and say, hey, we want you to be the king. We love this kind of welfare system where you give us food all the time. We can, we can go with that. And Jesus says, no, the only reason you want me to be your king is so that you can have your fill. So your stomachs can be full. Jesus says this, John 6, verse 32. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. 
All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Physical hunger for the Christian should serve as a reminder that we have a deeper hunger, a spiritual hunger, an emptiness that only Jesus can fill. And as Jesus tells us himself here in John chapter 6, look to the Son. Look to the Son who offered himself as the bread of God come down from heaven. Who gave himself up for us on the cross. Who became sin for us. So that in him we might become righteous. Through his death. Believe in him. Trust fully in him and his death for your sin. And Jesus says, if you will. You gain eternal life. Fasting is a great gift that God has given us. It points us to Jesus. It causes us to hunger for God's word. It reminds us to long for Christ's appearing. It urges us to seek God and God alone as our great reward. May we do that to the glory of God. Would you pray with me?